0: Are you excited? I feel like you're up to something and I don't know what it is. I am. <laughs> Thank you for the honesty. Um, I'm scared.
1: I So I have a little bit of a quiz for you. And as requested, you've put a ticking clock behind your own audio. Requested by you, right? Yes. Like,
0: yes. I have to say that part of it. Yes. Okay. Let's do it.
1: Here's the first question. Mary, are you ready for this, Nelly?
0: <laughs> no, Never.
1: Question one. Who is the best investigative reporter of the late 19th century? Nellie Bly. Meanest girl on the prairie?
0: Nellie Olson.
1: Finest band-aid wearing rap artist of the early 20th century?
0: Wow. St. Louis' own one Nellie.
1: Strongest delivery of I'm Like a Bird? Oh my
0: God. Canadian poetess Nellie Furtado.
1: Most loyal orphan in the American girl universe?
0: I mean, Nellie O'Malley, RIP, you did not deserve this. (laughs) Wow. Someday I'm just going to make you watch that music video after this because it is so bonkers. The trajectory of Nelly Furtado's career is like what's possible slash a cautionary tale about what happens when you come to the United States. Like she started off as a as an artist with her own voice. And then it was like, who are you? Like this is a person who's lost.
1: I think Ashanti is to this show in 2019 as Nelly Furtado is to this show in late 2020 as Listen, of now.
0: Listen, I, what I love to say to 2020 as a year, I'm like a bird Elson's losing it, I want to fly away. That's it. Get me out of here. It's bad. She had to do a duo duet with T- Justin Timberlake. So like she, she will that. not
1: start this show.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm including all of this. It feels vital to me. Thank okay. you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me get back into it. Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary I'm still Allison. You know, thank you for joining us for a really truly unexpected, even to me, monologue on Nellie Furtado and her legacy, and for a discussion of what is truly one of the most bonkers books I've ever read.
1: I'm so delighted to be here today to discuss Samantha Book Six. I didn't think we'd ever make it. I didn't nope. I didn't think I would feel what I wanted to feel. I just want to also say to our listeners that I've been on a reflective journey. I was listening to some of our episodes. Samantha has brought out tones in me, inflections in me, a habit to say like. I don't know what she's done. I don't know if it's just there's this imaginary pink bow tied tight around my head with Samantha. She's made me sort of... I don't know. (laughs) She's made me giggly. I... I won't apologize for it, but I will say I've noticed it because I think there's such an element of unabashed discovery and strangeness to Samantha's stories and they are truly like done up in a figurative bow. Yes, I don't know, because just when you think you have a handle on it, do you understand how her family is making ice cream? Well, don't get comfortable because we're going to an Adirondacks camp and recreating a death by drowning. Don't get comfortable.
0: Don't get comfortable with anyone showing up. Don't get comfortable with people telling you they're not like the marriages that are happening completely (laughs) out of our way. She's very modern. Yeah, she actually kind of is very modern except for the part where she's like Signals that she's content with her three orphan friends being maids in her house. And then Uncle Guard's like, but they could be her sisters. And she's like, oh, 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 yeah. Okay, that sounds better. Thank you. Didn't know that was on the table.
1: I don't know that we have the hours left in this year, which has already felt like quite a long year to get into the mental profile of Gardner.
0: We're never gonna get there. I'll just say that. there's there's been some convenient. I think actually Val, this book, like we'll get into it in a second. like she actually is where I'm at with him. Like she sees what I see if you don't if you know what I'm saying. beep, beep. Yes. <laughs> and so this plot has been constructed with that in mind. So like for that, like I honor Val.
1: but honestly, wow. you know, There were times when we have been reading other characters and we felt, you know, I I will use Josefina as an example. Like we were so tight in her world, right? We truly were in her home. We were in her very small, very tight community. I look at the cast of characters, the guess who that's under Samantha's family and friends. And I mean, the fact that by book six, admirable you know, at whoever Archibald is like top billing. No,
0: ridiculous. Nope.
1: But then to also know that it's like, what has happened to Jesse? You know, all these people that we have lost along the way. And Samantha just shines and smiles back at us from inside the book. And she's like, don't ask. I won't.
0: I mean, don't ask. I, I didn't have time to look this up, but I want to know what your boys to men came out with. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday (laughs) because I feel like Val was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to like pull some people back from the dead. Like Nellie's going to come back from nowhere. It's not really going to make a ton of sense. And then like Jesse and even, I mean, we're finally getting a storyline where a maid has a big plot point. Like the maid's really in this. And the other maid who like had to be in all the other books is basically defined by her scowl or her bad attitude she doesn't even get her moment in the sun, so like Val made some really tough casting choices in this book.
1: I do think a primary thing I'm really interested in talking about is the way that working class people are represented in this book because I think it's uh, yeah it's a major through line, and it's actually really interesting what she does with those characters versus what some of the other authors did with the characters. And I'll just say it's something that other readers have picked up on and written about in comments the way that consistency is hard to come by in this book. And if you're looking for it, I think you need to read another series because it's not happening for you.
0: You know, it's like Val's brand is chaos. We've said that before. <laughs> and this is perhaps like the greatest example of that that I've seen so far.
1: I mean, I don't. So is there anything else to even talk about? or Are we just doing this?
0: I feel like there's a lot I could say. I won't get into it. I will just like hot recommend episodes of Grand Designs that are on YouTube. Look for season 20. Like that also oh. has a lot of chaos, a lot of building, a lot of family disruption, it's a home building show. I won't get into it, but like I have very strong feelings about it and there's a lot of stuff coming out with season 20. I'm watching it on YouTube. Thank you to the heroes who have legally downloaded it. Thank you very much. That's all I need to say. Let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn.
1: Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships.
0: What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously. So we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well.
1: If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn.
0: That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today.
1: So this time I have but one review for you or sorry, not review one overview for us to get into because it actually does a pretty good job of telling what goes on in this book. This book is finally younger than us. This book is from 1988. So it is not exactly our peer. And this book six is the changes book. Times change for Samantha when she moves to New York City to live with Uncle Gard and Aunt Cornelia. They change for Nellie, Samantha's servant friend in Mount Bedford, too. But Nellie's changes aren't as happy as Samantha's. When her friend disappears, Samantha thinks Nellie has been lost forever. But after a long and scary search, Samantha finds Nellie and her sisters in a New York orphanage. The orphanage is not a good place, so the girls plan a daring escape. First note, there's a character who's integral to this story changed my life. Gertrude.
0: I knew you were going to stand Gertrude.
1: (laughs) I stand Gertrude because she has to put up with all the shenanigans. So here's the thing. Gertrude is really busy running this massive household for Guard and Cornelia, who you know are getting late night visitors who are not each other. So let's just double however many people you think live there.
0: Yes. Weren't you scared when Samantha says I could hear them murmuring like her bedroom is so close to theirs that she can hear them murmuring. And I was like, honestly, it doesn't feel right that she's so close to their bedroom because it's like they have private lives that are like not going to make sense outside of their house or like within it, just the standards of the time. And I just feel like she should not be put in that position.
1: So once again, I think to punish the overall you know decisions that were made in the structure of how these books got written valerie denies us a critical scene which is we don't get the wedding between air quotes admiral and grand mary we don't get the scene where samantha gets told once again that she's so unessential to the house in mount bedford that she's being shipped to new york yep And this is part of where there is a gap between Nellie and Samantha because Nellie is still working as a servant back in Mount Bedford and Samantha has moved on to New York, but she misses her. And just to like fill you in on the ending air quotes, their daring escape is just Samantha breaking them out of this orphanage, which is not subtly titled, and moving them into the attic in a V.C. Andrews style move. Yeah. And Gertrude figures out very quickly that Samantha is harboring multiple children in the attic.
0: Yeah, but like, also not quickly enough. Like, no, <laughs> there's that's so fair. much. It. So it was like they they spend four days up in the attic of this family home. And my question goes to a major issue of the early 20th century, and that's of course sanitation. I and know. So, okay, didn't you think about this? So Samantha's basically like, you cannot make noise. Do not move. I will bring you snacks, like whatever I can steal from the kitchen or scrounge up, you know, uh, here's some toys. Like she's prepared a space for them that she thinks is, you know, like welcoming and homey as she describes it. So she's really done what she can. What we are not getting a description of is like, and of course they had access to a bathroom or cause it's like, okay, well, if they're flushing a toilet, which could theoretically have happened if they came down to the top floor, which people are living in the servant court or whatever, Gertrude would hear that.
1: They are absolutely not flushing a toilet.
0: But we're not getting like, and there's a chamber pot, and I will be responsible for emptying that, which is like totally not a thing I've ever thought about doing.
1: But I would also say you would be very triggered if there was a chamber pot.
0: I would refuse to stay. I'll be like, I'll take my chances on the train. Choo, choo. Let's go. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Bye.
1: I will say the stakes are always incredibly high for Nellie in ways that are so insane. Unfair. And I feel like we do have to, you know, sanitation is key actually because we learn tragically that her parents have passed away from the flu. And we learn that she is then taken care of by Uncle Mike, who I have a lot, a lot. I have supplemental materials, I have articles. Mr. O'Malley, we will discuss. But in the meantime, She loses her parents to the flu and then she and her sisters are really on their own. And I think something the book is smart and accurate about is the lack of safety net for them, Yeah, the way that other families try to take care of them, but they are also already so overwhelmed. She ends up at the orphanage where she is, of course, treated poorly. And then Samantha is able to intervene. But I think like to me, the driving question that was so interesting is like, Is Gertrude, who's miserable, what happens when you don't have a Samantha? Like, that seems to be the underlying argument. Like, if a rich Mm. person doesn't reach out that hand at that critical turning point, do you become a Gertrude who's miserable because she's trapped in a job she doesn't want? Nellie and her sisters are being trained to be Gertrudes at the orphanage.
0: Well, and it's interesting because the book seems to be at war with itself over what Gertrude, how Gertrude would process her own position because in the book itself, Gertrude is miserable because as you're saying, she's having to clean up after likes of Samantha. Like this is not a pleasure cruise at all. <laughs> um, however, at the orphanage, we learn that like, that is the highest possible estimation of what someone like Nellie could aspire to, according to what she's been told by society and the woman who runs the orphanage that, you know, being a servant, being a maiden a air quotes, good family's home is better than being a beggar on the street. Cause we also mm-hmm. hear about like street children in this book as well. However, if you go and read peek into the past, which like not to jump the gun here, but we get this very strange history of immigration, which basically presents living as a servant as like, you've made it like as yes. a, as a wonderful job, as the fulfillment of the American dream, you know, the upward mobility has no limit. And this is just, you know, like one rung on the ladder, but also like a prized rung on the ladder. And it's almost like whoever wrote Peek into the Past didn't really get on the same page with Val. And Val was also at war with herself about both What she has some characters say about what it means to be a servant, but also the lived experience that she's also presenting about what it's like to be a servant.
1: Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is being a servant at a house like Cornelia and Gardner's is very different from other kinds of service. And, you know, to put it in the larger frame, almost all domestic servants in this period generally were black women, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we always kind of see this tendency in histories of service where people basically like go into Photoshop and take Downton Abbey and try to dump it into the United States. And that was a very small, very limited slice in this time period. So early 20th century elite homes in New York. They constitute a very small percentage of the total number of women who are doing domestic service, which is almost always Black women or women who are ethnic minorities somewhere else in the country. Where I kind of see that tension in here too is there were people who were from certain European countries who got amazing jobs as servants that were really high paying because they were actually highly specialized. Mm -hmm. Nellie, as an Irish child in an orphanage, would be really lucky to get those kinds of jobs and is probably unlikely, except the fact that she's smart and she might get to do some like teaching in a household.
0: Yeah, entirely. Um, I was thinking about actually my own family history reading this book because, like, some great great aunts of mine came over from Ireland dramatic pause. The depiction of Irish people in this book is not good, not great. Um, but they were servants in a house, um, in Hartford, Connecticut, and they listened in as the businessman who employed them would talk about what to do with money And so they took their earnings and pooled them and bought like a house that they used as a boarding house and then like continue to grow this boarding house business. But it's very funny because in my family that's presented as like, well, that's what happened to all immigrants. or like, that's (laughs) what was possible for everyone who worked in a servant position. And it's like, that is absolutely the exception and not the rule. And as you're saying, certainly not racially um, the majority either.
1: No. And there's also a kind of tension in there of like, what kind of work is actually work, right? So it's like Cornelia does things that are work, but she's not presented as a working woman. Mm-hmm. Gard does not seem to be doing anything, but has a profession. And it's finally time. It we just came out with it. He's a lawyer. What? How do He's we a learn lawyer. that? How do we learn that indeed? So many, many listeners told me, Allison they didn't say that, but they said, American Girls Podcast, you have to read Nellie's Promise. And I said, I shall. And it's like one of the longest supplementals that has come across our table so far. Um, But it does shed a little bit more light into Good Uncle Gardner. And I think part of why it's relevant to this discussion, it it's where the timeline goes next. So it's early March through May 1906. so it's like the months after where this book kind of leads off. It has a pretty tough depiction, I think, of the uncle, Uncle Mike, um, that feels xenophobic. I, I can't really think of another word. Mm-hmm. I think the way the way that Uncle Mike O'Malley is written, I understand kind of what they were going for, but there are hints in book six that he is a drunkard and is not good with money and is not taking good care of the children. And then in Nellie's promise, Nellie happens to kind of run into him and finds out that he's still around. And basically he tries to like low-key extort Gardner and Cornelia, not because he wants the girls back um, because they have been taken in by Gardner and Cornelia but because he he wants like some leverage over some wealthy people and the whole scene where she encounters him it really kind of pathologizes him like yes maybe he is a bad person but him being kind of the only irish adult in this book and being treated as if he's like this like very frightening person i it was kind of surprising
0: Yeah, I wonder why they chose that. And I I know that, you know, Irish immigration was, you know, at a height around, added around that period, but I also kind of have to wonder if in the late 80s and 90s, because Irish Americans had, air quotes, assimilated to a degree that they were the majority, if Val and others felt safe making ethnic connotations with Irish people, knowing that it wasn't linked to any contemporary major stereotype or prejudice against Irish Americans or Irish people. Um, I know other Irish people who dissent from this and think that, you know, if there are Irish people, I was in an Irish American museum. They were like, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Like people still discriminate against us Irish. And it's like, I, I disagree. I don't think that's the case, but so I'm wondering if that's why, like it's such a safe group in 1988 that she felt that it was okay, whoever wrote that book, to lean into those stereotypes. I don't really think stereotypes in general are necessary ever. No. Um, but even in book six, he's described as when they arrive at his apartment in New York, he takes all of their possessions and all of their money and leaves them. Like, in a way, it's a very Val move, which is like, she doesn't go for like a five. She's always at a ten. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, he's listed as... Uncle Mike, Nellie's no good uncle, who abandoned Nellie and her sisters after their parents' death. And I think the part that really struck me, because in the Peak Into the Past, they talk a bit about temperance and like kind of different movements around reforming people. And I think what's just like very done with like a very blunt hand is it's like, Mike is Irish, Mike is a drunk, period. And it's like, he is a bad person. Like there's really not a lot of like nuance there or. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like, I mean, in a way she's writing as if she was an early 20th century, like humorist or or just writer who is like, well, he's Irish. We all know what that means. Dot, dot, dot.
1: And when you actually like take a step back for a second, like he is a not well off working class person. He is a poor person. He is struggling. He lives in a tenement. And now one of his siblings has died their spouse has died and he is now left with three little girls, all under the age of 10, which is incredibly overwhelming, even if you're in like the best possible scenario in life. And he has to take care of them and he really has no resources. And I'm I'm not I'm not like a microvisionist. I don't have anything invested in like rehabilitating Mike, but I think as an adult reading this, it's interesting to think about that just like very sharp representation. Like guard and cornelia are good people. Because they find children in their attic and they say, well, we'll all sleep on it and talk about it tomorrow, Um, even though they're probably only like 25 and now they have four four kids. And it's like, and Mike is a bad person in the way this is represented. And I think maybe where we're zooming in on it is it gets at this thing, which is there's a tendency in American culture of progressive reformers and people in charitable institutions to basically pathologize people who are poor and to yep. say that they don't deserve children, can't take care of their children. And there is some evidence of like some bad deeds. Like he's not great to Nellie at the same time. It's, it's a very black and white representation in this book.
0: Well, I don't think it does any, I wonder like now, writers writing for children, if they kind of think about preparing children for what emotional maturity is, which is being able to hold two ideas about one thing at the same time. So saying, you know, Mike sure did treat his nieces badly when they arrived by taking their money and abandoning them. And Mike was in a very high pressure, like really stressful situation. And I can have empathy for that. Instead, it's like it feels like it does a disservice to the kids to presume that they can only process Mm. this kind of, you know, stark binary storytelling. Um, You know, it's also interesting to think, too, going back to what you said about how we see representation of workers in this book in terms of thinking about biography, like what about a person's life do we get in these books? What parts of your life are we allowed to see or to know about? With Gertrude, we only see her at work. We only see her as like a crank, like she's (laughs) you know in a terrible mood all the time. Like Cornelia, there's an opening scene in which Cornelia and Samantha are making Valentines and they're kind of making a mess. And Cornelia has ordered tea for Samantha who's coming on a very cold day. And Gertrude comes in and like literally has no surface to put it down on, and sort of says like, "Well, where am I supposed to put this?" And Cornelia's like, "Oh, like I roll. Like Samantha will sit on the floor, just put it on her like footrest." And she's like, "She's gonna sit on the floor because Gertrude's life is all about this kind of hierarchy in which she mm-hmm. finds herself. So in a way, like Cornelia rejecting that hierarchy and being like flip about it is is almost insulting to her. Yes. And then she adds insult to injury by handing her a jar. Of paper mache or like paper glue, and is like, Can you whip up some more of this glue? Like, we're making more Valentine's. And Gertrude's like, What? It like her head must just be exploding. Like she and Grand Mary actually seem like pairs. She yes. seems to stand in for Grand Mary in this book, who's on her honeymoon, like, God bless. <laughs> like, congrats, I guess. Um, I feel like she was off like filming her own version of whatever the Victorian version of Mama Mia is in Greece. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, it is weird. It's like with Cornelia and uh, guard. We only see these like quirky, like they're so amorphous. It's like, I don't, I can't pin anything down on them. Like, I don't really know what their actions are like. I don't know what their behavior is. I really didn't know what his job was, but it's like, he's the man who like sneaks candy into kids in the orphanage. And he's like always fun and has a surprise or he's like something like fun to say. Yeah. So it's like, that's the privilege. It's like, if you're a rich person, we get to know about your personality, which itself is like an emerging concept in this period. But if you're a worker, all we get to know is your work and how you feel about it.
1: So when you're talking about that relationship too, it reminds me of, you know, sometimes there's a value to formality because it allows people to understand better how something is working, right? Like, yeah, Like sometimes there's a level of respect that comes with being a bit formal because you're trying to make sure that everyone knows how they need to behave. And I'm thinking of when we read Such a Fun Age a few Mm -hmm. months ago, which is about a relationship primarily between, um, a black woman who's acting as a caretaker to a white woman's children and a book I just read a few weeks ago called friends and strangers, which is about um, a woman who moves from Brooklyn to a college town that is honestly like exactly like Mount Bedford and really forms this intense attachment to her babysitter. Who's a young woman who goes to the local college and both of those books, one deals more with kind of, um, race and racism between women but both of those books are about when people who employ someone cross boundaries and how the employee is trying to navigate those boundaries when Mm. the person in charge refuses to be formal in a way that's appropriate there's a scene in friends and strangers where the woman who is a paid babysitter is asked to do something and the husband says, oh, are, are we going to pay her for that? And the wife says, no, she's doing this as my friend. And ah. <laughs> but but there's a moment of they do also have this genuine friendliness with each other and they have this relationship. And when Gertrude is asked to basically crouch down and get the glue and cater to this child, it is in their time period. And for her background, a disrespect to her station
0: Yeah. It makes sense. It's like, don't make me play this role and then decide that you're going to change the role. Like you're a part in this too. Mm. Like, you know, it's sort of like Cornelia wants to play this role in a play with Gertrude and then she, but she also wants to sort of like. I'm a cool boss. I'm a cool boss, you know, or, (laughs) or kind of like it reminds me of Marie Antoinette building a peasant village at Versailles. So she could go and like, like slum it or pretend to be a, a peasant. <laughs> like that's so insulting and yet Marie Antoinette's like this like the greatest sign of her privilege is that she was completely oblivious to that fact or didn't care. And in a way like you can see that with a lot of rich people well now but also in a sense, like in Cornelia, I don't think it's that over in this book. Um, I think she's sort of oblivious to it. I think we're meant to think of her as just like a very maternal person. Yes. Who doesn't let sort of like ritual or societal expectations stop her from being a really strong like source of support and love for Samantha. And the same for Guard, even though Guard has like secrets.
1: Well, and that's also because they are designed and you see it reinforced in A Peek of. the Past that – Unlike other characters who go through a rather abrupt change like Felicity with the set of events that happen in Williamsburg in that particular spring, the, the kind of gist of what they're going for with Samantha living from 1904 to 1905 is generations rejecting traditions of previous people. Mm -hmm. And they do it through different ways, like Samantha refusing to wear the stockings, Cornelia speaking at the suffrage rally. And I think it's interesting that rather than have more confrontations or friction around that, Grand Mary just kind of pulls the plug and leaves. You know, yeah. I mean,
0: I was thinking that too. That it was like in a way, it's really interesting because, first of all, when I was reading this book, she's like, bye, got my husband. (laughs) I feel so angry that we were deprived the scene of the positive engagement of him like actually proposing her saying yes. It's like, how did he flip the script enough that she gave a new answer? What happened?
1: Okay, do you believe he's alive? Oh. Page seven. I also love that there's cursive in this book because yes, I was I, just gonna say that I had such a vision of Child Allison feeling proud of herself and being like, Oh, I also have good penmanship, just like Grand Mary. So, Grand Mary writes from the yacht that she is luxuriating on. They are off of Greece, sounds nice. And she says, please give our love to your Uncle Gardner and Aunt Cornelia, ever your devoted grandmary. And then in like a childish scrawl, very similar to Nellie's, suspiciously so, ahoy, matey, what ho, XOXO, your admiral. If I've ever seen a fake greeting in my life, and then you get comfortable. Belle does that. You get comfortable yeah, she does that. with an aunt or an uncle, and then there's a paper trail, always. Page eight. I'm sitting, I'm living my life. I'm trying to sure. survive a pandemic. Yeah. I am. This is Nellie. Also, Nellie is so me. I'm fine, but I have news. The flu has been very bad here in Mount Bedford this winter. We all had it except Jenny. My mother and father died. I miss Excuse them me? so I know. I miss them so much. And then her employer, Mrs. Van Sicklen, says they are in heaven and honestly, part of me felt this like real fear for Nellie. I'm making an assumption, but let's assume her family is Catholic. Like, is anyone taking her to services? Is anyone caring for her? Probably Obviously, not. we think she needs therapy, and that's not going to happen. Not but necessary. you know, you know Nellie was behind on picking up the coals, and Mrs. Van Sicklin was like, "They're in heaven. I'm here."
0: <laughs> but also, the line that killed me was, Mrs. van Sicklin has been has been kind. But now we have to leave her. House. Now we to leave her house. <laughs> I, know. I, know. I was like, "Excuse me, what?" She was like, "She's been so amazing to us," and she said
1: she would drive us to the train. <laughs> she does. She does. She does. She's like, she took us. She took us right to there. It's like someone falling ill and saying, um, "You know, like this this bad partner like took me in the Uber." I found yet another shock. Page 17. Vincent Uh D'Onofrio makes a cameo as Uh a street vendor. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't notice that before. That's because you know what? I like to think about him as younger, Vincent.
1: Yeah, I know you do. But I'm, I'm here for him for all times. I... I did want to talk about something on page 18, and I did want to invoke our very good friend, Dan, whose wife Grace listens and also whose daughter, I just like to believe, listens despite her age being under two. <laughs> um because what happens is Samantha goes looking for Nellie upon learning that she's been brought to New York and not being able to make contact. And I found it interesting kind of navigating new spaces in New York with Samantha. We've had fun times with her. We've had wild chases with the dog and all that stuff. And when she's kind of going through the neighborhood, there's a lot of words like rough, you know, like it's it's rough, it's darker, it's not what she's used to. And it kind of made me wonder. About something our friend Dan talked about once, which was slumming. Hmm. So Chad Heap's book, Slumming, is about mostly wealthier people going into different parts of New York City to have sexual experiences, to interact with people they would not normally interact with. And the ways basically that wealthier people invade poorer people's spaces to have a thrill or to have this kind of experience. And we had read that book up against a bunch of books about white flight. And it raised this question of whether there really is any way for people of such different social classes, such different backgrounds to interact in a way that isn't exploitative or in a way that doesn't leave both parties feeling, you know, still alienated from each other. And what's interesting is in this book, Nellie and Samantha really don't have much class tension. Nellie is so grateful. And then Nellie's promise actually does a really good job of Nellie feeling really uncomfortable with the fact Mm. that like, once she's actually in this life – She understands that when she turns 18, like there's no trust fund. Like Nellie's promise is all about like her wanting to do right by her sisters and basically saying, I can't roll with you, Samantha. I need to be preparing for a job. Like this isn't fun and game. She's 11, by the way. (laughs) Like this isn't Uh, fun fun and games for me. But the seriousness with which she approaches life is at odds with Samantha in that book, which I think is really smart. And what ends up coming out of that book is she meets a teacher she admires and decides that she's going to be a teacher. And that's like her way into the middle class. But I think it's interesting that in the supplementals, they get into that friction a lot more. Hmm.
0: And is there any kind of reinforcement or kind of truth telling by uncle guard or Cornelia in these books about like, yeah, you're right. Samantha has a trust fund coming to her and her lineage. It's also like that piece too, right? That she has this sort of ancestry that she can point to and say, look, I'm of this world. I belong here. And when you think about marriage connections, when you think about like Alva Vanderbilt and uh, Mrs. Astor and all these people, like when they were considering marriages, it was like political um, unions between very families of a similar level. So like ancestry bloodlines, like all of that really matters to these people. So that's another area too, where it's like, even if she had the economic power behind her, even if she had a trust fund, she would never be Samantha's equal in the eyes of the world that she now finds herself in.
1: No. And I think there's so many famous examples. I mean, one that comes to mind and obviously it's not the same exact when we read Jessica Simpson's memoir and the way that her friend basically ends up on her payroll. This also happened with Britney Spears. You know, Free Britney. people, <laughs> of course, comrade Britney, comrade. uh, People are always trying to find ways, I think, who are more fortunate and care about other people to say like, well, how do I kind of buoy this person? How do I bring this person up with me? But there's always a fundamental inequality built into the friendship. Like it will always be known that the only reason Nellie leaves the orphanage is because she has Samantha's family to support her. And that's always going to be something that even if it doesn't cause problems, like they both understand that no matter how good a friend Nellie is. And a lot of the supplementals deal with Nellie and, you know, instances of her being a good friend and Samantha being a good friend. One person has more power in that relationship because Samantha could could say, I'm real sick of Jenny and Bridget and they're out. I mean, Gard is a good person. But- yeah, but I mean, that <laughs> was
0: such a stunning moment to me at the end of the book, which is like, So they're, they've been living for four days in the attic. Gertrude (laughs) blows the whistle on all of them because she hears them walking around and connects the dots when Samantha is caught trying to take four cookies out of the cookie jar for like a Valentine's party she wants to throw for them. And so then Samantha's asked to explain herself by guard and Cornelia and she's like, well, you know, they're training to be maids. Like they could stay here. They could be here as maids. And guards like, um, we were thinking they could be your sisters. And Samantha's <laughs> like, Oh, like it's just a really <laughs> weird moment on I think page 59.
1: It's Cornelia who says we don't need any more maids. Yes. Samantha's heart sank. But and then this part, I was like, if you set this to horror music, but we do need more girls. I'd say we need three more girls in a variety of sizes, tiny, Ah. medium, and still not very big.
0: Also, did you ever think you'd hear Uncle Guard say, but we need more girls here?
1: Yes, only because I feel like he, in his own mind, is the ringleader of like a camp production.
0: (laughs) He's going to put on some uh, Broadway show, maybe a production of Annie coming soon to a parlor near you.
1: I do feel like another thing that makes Samantha queer canon is this is chosen family. They have all chosen yes. each other. They have. Well,
0: yes. And that's, what's so stunning is at the end of the book, <laughs> this is what I wrote down too. the last line of this book. I'm the luckiest person in the world. At last, at last, I have a real family of my own. Now, if I was uncle garden, I'd be like, sorry, excuse <laughs> us. Like we've been here the whole time, but in Grandma's, like on a yacht. So like I understand like <laughs> the shade at her, like she's working that out. But you're right. It is chosen family. I wrote that down too. Like this is this is major queer canon behavior.
1: And I also think we are gonna be talking a lot, a lot about Hull House in our Patreon episode, but it is talked about at the very end of the book because Hull House, as a kind of contrast to an orphanage, but it does raise an interesting question of Cornelia and, and Gard are basically running a settlement house. Like they yes. now have like a quasi-workshop classroom on the top floor. We hope a bathroom. We hope. We, we hope. We
0: would love to see a floor plan. Thank you. But <laughs> you know, if anyone has one.
1: There's there's something interesting too about like the whole back end is kind of about like immigration, women, work, and then you know, like how much America changes. And someone on this editorial board. Must have insisted every single time, like, if I don't get an effing car or other random technology reference, I will flip out. Like, someone was sitting with an Edison light bulb yes. dangling over their head saying, If you don't give me a Wright Brothers reference, yeah. I will delete your draft. And love it. I think just because of who we are as people, those kinds of headlines. Don't appeal to us. Like the Wright brothers, um, their third airplane was actually in the air for a good amount of time, about two months before this book is set. Teddy Roosevelt is president. Like we get it. The other thing that's kind of interesting to me is I started looking up visuals of New York City in this time, like winter 1905. And the famous photo of the flat iron building we can post it, is actually of that winter in 1905. Mm. And the reason I bring that up is portions of that photograph look so modern, right? Like that's obviously a stunning piece of modern urban architecture. But there's also... Carts and carriages with horses in the background of that mm. photo. And you can kind of think of like guards, New York, and then this old New York where animals are still pulling carts. We have Vincent D'Onofrio working as a peddler,
0: solving crimes, selling chestnuts.
1: It really is a period, like I was struck by this in studying the 1930s, where it's depending on your class, race, background, and region, you have communities where almost no one has a toilet and then you have communities that are living really not so different in certain ways from the way a middle-class person lives today. Mm -hmm. And I think there's these flashpoints in history, like 1905 New York is incredibly different depending on whether you happen to be stuck at the orphanage or if Samantha is your friend.
0: Yeah. And I think the scene that really brings that out is the telephone scene where in the beginning, Um, Samantha's freaking out because Nellie has written with that very depressing letter about her parents passing and it, two weeks have gone by and she has not shown up at her house as she said she would to come visit. So guards like, okay, well, I'm going to call like her former employer and we'll see what's up. And so he gets on the phone and like, he cranks the phone. Like we get this sort of visual of like romanticizes, like what original phone, like early phones were like, and he gets her on the phone. He's like, hey, sorry, like, where's Nellie at? And she's like, Oh, I put her on a train two weeks ago. And he's like, Oh, okay. And he, she's staying with her uncle. Where does he live? And then she says, he says, so he likely doesn't have a phone, right? And she's like, definitely not. So you get this. And then he says, I'm gonna let you off the phone. So they're like, there's this reticence to keep someone on this very new invention, which is such a strange comparison to now, which is like a lot of people do not like speaking on the phone now just because texting is an option. I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> I'm just going to stare at you and give you a meaningful look. <laughs> yes. Um, but I know a lot of people like that. And there's a lot of things and a lot of tasks that you can do with text that used to require having a phone conversation. So, you know, it's a really interesting moment of like, yeah, he can call like, a different part of New York state have a conversation with this girl's former employer, but also recognize that there's a man living in his city who he can has like no expectation of even calling on the phone because there's such a class and economic division within his own city.
1: Do you know what city pioneered the telephone number?
0: Um, would love to hear that.
1: Lowell, Massachusetts.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, I also love looking up medical journals when, um, telephones were first developed and we're getting into people's homes and there's all these diagnoses. Like I was made insane by the telephone or like, there's women who are like, I'm hysterical. And it's, I think it dates to like, I have a tele, I've had a telephone for five months.
1: I I think that's also something that is brought out in Perry Mason. And if you're not watching one of the pieces of ammunition that's brought against a woman in the show is that she spends hours every night on the phone. And we were talking about sort of friendship culture off air recently And I, out of nowhere, had this incredibly vivid memory of thinking about my mom when I was a kid and the way we had this phone that was mounted on the wall. It was like pale yellow. And it had this insanely long cord. And thinking of how many times in my childhood I would think, okay, well, like don't trip over the cord because the phone was in the kitchen and we adopted cordless really late. And she would be like three rooms over with this cord (laughs) stretched across so much of the house. And I think about the way people kind of say, oh, you know, people are obsessed with their phones, texting, you know, my mom and others would stay in touch with friends for hours on the phone. And this yeah. cord would be like all over our home in a way where the phone was a highly physical presence.
0: Yeah. And and, and it's so generational as you're saying that there was a viral thing a couple of weeks ago about. I think on TikTok or something that Gen Z people, when they're trying to say I'm on the phone, they just put up a hand, like stop. That's how I interpret it. But someone our age or older would be like doing, making the phone (laughs) with their hand, like I'm on the phone. And it's just funny, like how much even in our own times, like there's these really big generational divides about technology and seeing, I'm kind of wondering what the generational divide we're meant to imagine you know, based on this book, like, are we supposed to see that Gardner and Cornelia are the ultimate progressives or in a way, are they raising the ultimate progressive? Like a person who, you know, like goes out into the street and she's like trying to solve society's problems, not involving the government, like through private industry, (laughs) she's doing it her own industry, but in a way it's like, she is the ultimate progressive.
1: She is. She is. I think you're supposed to get major Jane Addams vibes. I think you're supposed to see her as a very sort of astute problem solver, but also the fact that once again, I found myself a little bit struck by how much Samantha was still on her own, even even in this book, like not going to school, apparently, Um, walking around the city, trying to find people. And I was looking up like what else was big in 1905. And in New York for a period of time, a lot of Twain books like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer were banned because they had bad examples of like boyhood and childhood. And I was thinking about how some of the pieces that were really popular in that time would have been books by Horatio Alger, right? Mm -hmm. And like Cheap, cheap, cheap books that even kids would pedal in the streets where like kids kind of act up and they're like who like who knows what the kids are up to. And Samantha kind of has an element of that. She's just really well dressed. Yeah. Yeah. It (laughs) reminds
0: me of like, I mean, she's coming of age during sort of like the tail end of the popularity of dime novels or yes. like these really cheap books, as you're saying. And one of the great themes in these books is running away from home. And if you mm-hmm. look through newspaper searches, like I think we have talked about chronicling America on this show before, it's a really awesome database where you can search scan newspapers going back hundreds of years. And if you search through this period and search dime novels and runaway, you will find like both boys and girls and grown women who run away from home because either they don't want to be married to their husbands anymore. There's a great article in which a girl says um, she read a dime novel and dreamed of being a cowboy. So she ran away from home. And it's like, sounds good to me. Like, <laughs> But you can see how like Samantha would be so like vulnerable to that. Or like she's the ideal reader for that kind of experience. So for her to suggest that Nellie and her sisters run away, it's like she likely didn't learn that experience
1: <laughs> from anyone in her life. But maybe she read that in a book. Yeah. And to think of how much, you know, we, we like to think that the world just became global in the past 50 years, but you know, Nellie's parents being immigrants themselves and, and probably still being very young, even when they pass and have three children, it's like, these are people who've already reinvented themselves a few times, right? Mm -hmm. Like they would not have gone directly to Mount Bedford. They started in New York. We know that. Um, and I think there is something to, like, I feel like there's an undercurrent of this book. Like the only thing you have to fear is not fear, but being poor, which is just so like, which is just so American. And the way that the peak into the past deals with immigrants, something I notice, and I don't get my language perfect all the time. Obviously that doesn't need to be said. There's a passage that says, you know, most immigrants could not speak English And I think that is so how I know like I was socialized to think about immigration and I try to challenge myself to phrase it completely differently to think about like, you know, language spoken in households or to think of these as bilingual people and the way that people who speak English at home learning a second language is amazing. And then people who speak something other than English at home Are are seen as less than, right? And like that's very much like the lesson in the back of this book.
0: Hundred percent, yeah. I mean it's it's interesting because the story they could have told from this period was like Sheba, friends, an immigrant who does not speak English, but as you're saying, like is not penalized by that. But in a way, they could have explored the story about how different immigration waves were treated differently. Like different groups were considered to like melt more easily than anyone then others into the melting pot and so on. But, you know, yeah, it, it the peek into the past is not great in book six.
1: No, and I think it does what a lot of them do, which is try to wrap up too many different threads. There's stuff about clothing. There's stuff about women in department stores. There's so many different angles. And yet, I don't want to shock you, but I have kind of a bombshell to drop, which I know I do Please. every single episode. <laughs> so I got interested in how... How prominent an issue the flu was in 1904, 1905. And it it wasn't particularly bad that year any more than other years until the teens. Typhoid Mary is the next year. I actually only know
0: that because I'm preparing a class on the history of disease. So like I have them reading typhoid Mary articles, but I'm please say more. It's an important topic. So
1: 1906 to 1907. Largest typhoid fever epidemic breaks out Tracked to New York. Uh, Mary Malin or Malian Malin. I think Malin. She spreads the virus. I'm reading from a source on epidemiology to 122 New Yorkers while she is cooking on an estate. It very much has orphanage vibes, like the same kind of Institute that Nellie gets to break out of. Um, It's estimated 12,670 deaths in 1907, 13,000 deaths a year before. And her life story is pretty terrible. Like things go very bad for her and it's not her fault. She's just a carrier who is forced to work because it's America. She's forced
0: to work. She's also forced into testing. Like she was Mm -hmm. basically hired as a cook for a family estate. She goes to this home A lot of the people in the family get sick with typhoid. She does not. She goes back with the family away from their vacation home. More people get sick. And everyone, at at a certain point, a public health official um, is able to trace it back to her. And he starts like hunting her down like she's a criminal and demanding that she submit herself to some very intimate tests. And she doesn't want to do it. She can't conceptualize like being an asymptomatic carrier. And also she's, her skill is being a cook. She's known as being an excellent cook. And so to tell her, you know, you are an asymptomatic character. All these people died because of you. And he really implies that she's dirty, which if you're working in service, particularly with food, that's the absolute last thing that you want said about you. But typhoid spreads through exposure to fecal matter of someone who has it. And so he basically says, like, you are not washing your hands correctly. You're spreading this um, through your cooking. He absolutely goes right at the heart of her self-worth as an immigrant, as a working person who is in this period, especially trained to prize cleanliness and hygiene, um, but also attacks her her way of caring for herself. She's not married. She doesn't have children who can support her. And she ends up having to live on, a, on an island in a hospital for the remainder of her life. Now, in the interim, she at one point goes AWOL and starts living under an assumed identity, which I also find fascinating. But did you ever read the thing where like she hides in the house? Like they finally come to arrest her and she goes over the wall and she runs away and she's like, I'm out of here. And she flees to like a friend's house. Who's also working as a servant and they find this person's house and they're like, is she here? And they're like, no, like never seen her. Haven't seen her in a long (laughs) time. And then they notice that there's like a closet door with a bunch of furniture in front of it and she's hiding (laughs) in the closet and they have to like physically carry her out But then she's like in custody for a while in this hospital to be contained. And then she escapes and she starts working again as a cook under an assumed identity More in a hospital. And more people start getting sick and dying. She gets caught again. And then she spends the remainder of her life on that island.
1: Wild. I'm very fascinated by that and the way that. In that time period, one of the worst things that could happen to you, according to people's perception, is being sent to an institution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the way that like their life in that orphanage constitutes a crisis in the book. I recently read Susanna Callahan's latest. She is the author of *Brain on Fire* about mm. her her period of um, misdiagnosis related to having encephalitis, and she recently wrote a book about. A group of people who went basically undercover in in, insane asylums prior to like the massive breakdown of those systems um, under Reagan. And like, if they could fool people into thinking that they were mentally ill and, and what goes on with that. And it was really about like the way that people have these very negative perceptions of what goes on in those places. And it makes it hard to get at nuance of like what might mm. be useful because a lot of them were bad. I'm not trying to white, Like I, I'm not being paid by like the orphanage association of America to say That's that a relief yeah. <laughs> to, to say that they were good, but to say, you you look at the situation that Nellie is in, and even in the way that her very best friend views it as dark and dirty. Like these are literally the words yeah. that are used, and you understand why people saw the orphanage as the better alternative. Even though we know those places had a lot of problems.
0: Yeah, well, I mean,
1: before I say something about the or the whole
0: orphan piece of this book, like. Um, I noticed today on Twitter that today is Macaulay Culkin's 40th birthday. Wow. And I only bring that up because one of the I think foundational quotes from a movie that I actually do use when I have to teach medicine is that in Home Alone, um, his brother says, Kevin, you're such a disease. <laughs> yes. And yeah. it's an insult that like makes you laugh in the moment. But actually, when you think about the history of disease, I think it's very helpful because in a lot of periods one group, often people in power, will map medical issues, all kinds of things on another group of people or persons as the source of, quote, disease, but also medical disease or illness. So typhoid Mary is interesting because she's just one person to whom this happens. But of course, we yeah. can see entire groups who get denigrated in this way as like a type, as a, um, you know, as a pathology, as a source of disease. And then what is the cure and who gets to decide what that is? Which sounds like a really interesting issue brought up in that book that you just read. But it's interesting too with the, with, um, the way that orphans are discussed, because we haven't talked about the orphan train, which oh, gets boy. referenced. <laughs> but in large part, the orphan train idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that by bringing orphans from New York to the Midwest and elsewhere and placing them with families, it privileges that health or safety for these children would exist at a greater rate if they lived in within a system of a family rather than an institution.
1: Yes. And there's also a contemporary science called euthenics, which is not the same as eugenics, but they're sort of like cousins, which is that The environment in which you live has a huge influence on who you become as a person. Mm -hmm. So, this is sort of separate from personality science or those kinds of things. But part of the notion of bringing youth out to different and often rural environments from urban environments was that they would literally be better people for having switched where they grow up. So, there's like a very literal basis to this, which I feel like once Samantha goes to Smith or Mount Holyoke, like she'd be down. Yeah, And there's elements of it that actually have not really left our culture. When you think of the way that environmental racism impacts people, there are very real concerns that are structural about the way that Nellie lives. Right, like if she is living in a place that does not have sanitation, or frankly, when they're in the attic and they don't have a toilet, or they don't have access to fresh I can't water. Even think about that. I know, but there, there are like very real concerns, and to think that she would have watched her parents die of the flu within the previous months, she's aware of danger to some degree of what happens to your body if you're not able to be well, and. It's really scary when Nellie talks about possibly having to get on the orphan train, and also knowing that candidly, young girls were not valued as much as young boys for the labor that they would be able to undertake. Man, it's it's rough going. Wasn't Nellie Olson?
0: Didn't they adopt like a, a mini Nellie? Yes. In the later years of the show, it's like you can sort of imagine like maybe she hopped off the orphan train.
1: There's and, there's a lot of adoption in in that show.
0: Yeah, a lot of it. Again, more chosen family we're thinking with, but um yeah, but it's interesting because it's like that the eugenics of it all but also presuming and privileging placing children in a family system as opposed to an institution. Like we absolutely still do that today. It's like the mm-hmm. only reason the orphan train doesn't exist is because we have the foster care system now, which also privileges putting children in family private family homes. Um, so, yeah,
1: I mean, I saw a story on Twitter last week of a young boy who was not being adopted out of the foster care system. And then the local news ran a story that was particularly resonant with people. And then he had something like 12,000 offers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's very easy to criticize people a hundred years ago who put ads about children in the newspaper. This is not any different. Definitely not. Because there's this foster system that exists outside of many people's experience. And then basically, it's an advertisement for kids. I'll post a link to this. There is some really interesting things through New York Historical Society about how to research orphan trains and how to do genealogy that I was reading through that I think people might enjoy. Hmm. And I'll just say also, if you want to understand better maybe why the back of The Peek Into the Past was written, how it was, and... Some richer history about women and work. Alice Kessler Harris is like the queen of that aspect of it. Um, she wrote a history of wage earning women, and she does obviously an amazing job at looking at the nuances of when and how women earn wages. Um, so I would rely on that more than the peak on the past if you are an adult listener. Or
0: I also think it's worth sitting with Anna of Green Gables after this. I mean, I'm just saying the reason she was a disappointment when she arrived because Matthew believed that they were getting a boy orphan who could help him around the farm and Anne had to convince them to keep her as a girl. Love. Just saying.
1: Now, like by way of conclusion, perhaps, because we are not done with Samantha. Not remotely. Abigail and Goodreads says Gardner and Cornelia Edwards are the ultimate power couple. True or false? Um, with each other? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I,
0: I don't know. I mean, I think they're like sweet friends. I think they're, yeah, like they're really nice roommates probably.
1: Yeah. Robin says Samantha's saga closes with a bang. I agree. Not for not for those two, but I think in a more amorphous sense. I agree. Like
0: I wouldn't say a singular bang. I think it's like a fireworks display.
1: (laughs) Yes. Now we have a lot to say about you know as you would say the Miss Frouchy of it all. Yeah. How are we going to engage orphan culture next?
0: We are taking ourselves to what we both believe is a foundational text, both to this history. Also to the creation of this series, we believe it came out in 1982. I think it did inspire our girl Val Tripp with some of her plot points. We will be doing a watch along on our Patreon to the original Annie musical Yes, coming up on a date TBD. We're going to post it on our socials and we'll talk about it. But tragically, you can't just watch this for free on a streaming service question mark. You have to rent it on Amazon for 2 dollars And, you know, if there's other, some other ways of watching it, you can like put that together for yourself, but we will be watching it on Amazon. We're going to rent it. So we will announce when that's going to happen. And then you can join us, um, for on our discord channel and we will watch Annie. Honestly, I don't even know. Like I have to prepare myself. There has been some events happening in the life of Carol Burnett, who is a queen that mirror the events of this book. Allison's losing it. Allison, she's just had to adopt her own grandson. Who's a (laughs) queen. sort of I I
1: will I'll say save it for the pod like we're on the pod but I'll just (laughs) we we do also want you to get your popcorn ready because on our next main episode we are watching the Samantha movie I'm
0: not emotionally prepared for that like I don't know what kind of like self-work I need to do to get to that headspace no. Like maybe I should watch something totally insane so that when I see this movie it will be within like the bandwidth that I can handle. I don't really know, but I'm very excited to see this movie
1: and Mary, there's also something you want people to send you, something you're compiling.
0: <sighs> yeah, so at the beginning of the episode, you said that you've been listening to the past episodes and you hear yourself saying like and you don't know what Samantha's doing to you. And my initial thought was like that reminded me of Kathleen Hannah saying the riot. Gr- <laughs> riot girl queen that she was denigrated because she said like and spoke like a valley girl. And she purposely did not abandon that because that was her true self. And she was speaking back to misogynist culture that judges intelligence in a very narrow way. However, riot girl makes <coughs> me think of zine culture. Wait for it. I am making an uncle guard zine. I We have received incredible content already we have received, I don't remember, sir, your name off the top of my head. I received, we both received a history of Saturn that I will call life-changing. And this person also did us the courtesy of including a selfie, a wedding portrait in which he, to demonstrate the degree to which he believes he looks like Uncle Guard. His like, name this is, is Andrew. Andrew, hello. Thank you very much. <laughs> I showed this to my mom who thought I wrote it as a joke or like to mess with her because my mom genuinely misses her Saturn like all the time. Allison's rolling her eyes. You don't get it. You were not part of the Saturn family. That's fine. We are doing the scene. Yes, yes, we are. Any and all Uncle Guard content. It could be amazing memes you've created or want to create. It could be artwork. It could be you a personal essay about your first car. It could be like some analysis of car culture in our world or in these books or in this time period. Whatever. If you think it's appropriate, send it to us. Honestly, if you think it's inappropriate
1: at this point. Also just- send it.
0: Like, who cares? It's 2020. <laughs> let's do it. On that note, if you want to send us content, we also now have a PO box, which is very exciting. Yes. And our physical address, if you want to send us snail mail, is on our website, on our contact page, as is our email address, which Allison knows.
1: Yes. You may reach us at Pod at Gmail. And I know that lately people have been adding to the the also the tab that we link to on our website where you can tell or share your story, and we do read those. I've actually been compiling a lot on Samantha for an upcoming episode and project. And you may also reach out to us on Twitter, where we are a Girls Pod, and Instagram, American Girls Podcast, um, where we post many things. And we do also have a Facebook page. And last but not least, we have a website with wonderful maintenance from Elizabeth, who is interning with us until her school starts again, uh, but who has done a truly wonderful job with our links. If you buy a book from our website, it does support the show.
0: Thank you very much. Of course. So, Allison, you know, if people want to get in touch with you to prepare you to watch Annie or the Samantha film or share all kinds of Vincent D'Onofrio trivia with you, how can I get in touch?
1: You can see photos of my cat at Allison Horrocks and you can right. read <laughs> what I write on Twitter where someone revealed at Allison Horrocks that they had reversed our voice and faces.
0: Oh, really?
1: Yeah. So neither of us post ourselves much, but if people did want to find you, where would they do that? They can feel free to find me on Twitter
0: at Mary Mahoney, one, two, three, and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And I truly love all the content people share with us. It makes my day.
1: We thank you so much. That was good. Like a bird. I'm like a bird. I only fly away. I don't know I'm
0: Thank <laughs> <laughs> you.